You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 566 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live on a fine Wednesday afternoon. My apologies for the slight delay in delivering another episode, but uh, we had plenty of content over the last week with three different episodes, about an hour in length each, with Jeff Siegel breaking down the entire roster. So if you missed those episodes, please go back and listen to those, or download and listen and tell your friends, and uh, definitely a lot of deep dive information there on the roster, so please go back and check those out. But looking ahead to today's episode, one piece of news and then some mailbag questions to get us through. I have an interview actually scheduled for later on in the week that will probably run on Friday, so please stay tuned for that as well. But uh, today's agenda will be a little bit shorter than it has been recently, and uh, there is plenty to look back on. So first things first is the piece of news that that I just uh, teased a second ago is that Lloyd Pierce was named to the USA basketball staff earlier this week. That was a pretty big honor for the first-year head coach of the Hawks. I guess not. I guess he's not really a first-year head coach anymore. He just finished his first year and uh, is heading into his second year. But Lloyd Pierce gets the nod to replace Nate McMillan, who had a scheduling conflict on the bench for Greg Popovich. Pop is the head coach for the 2019-20 quote-unquote season for the uh, USA Basketball men's team. Um, and Pierce will be joining Steve Kerr and Villanova's Jay Wright as the assistant coaches for that uh, event or set of events. It's uh, basically a one-year commitment for Pierce to take part in the FIBA World Cup in China uh, this September. That's sort of the uh, second biggest international competition from a basketball standpoint. And then later on, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo next summer, 2020, which is, of course, the headliner of the um, time Pierce will be spending with USA Basketball. Um, obviously, this is a, a big-time recognition for one of the young rising stars in the industry. Pierce is someone who I didn't know a ton about heading into this season, uh, at least at least before he arrived on the scene in Atlanta with his intro press conference and all of that stuff. But even in uh, sort of doing some research before um, before the hiring process and then right after he was hired, before he was introduced, uh, basically everyone swears about Lloyd Pierce uh, around the league, players, media members, other coaches that I've spoken to. Everyone seems to love Lloyd Pierce. It's easy, easy to see why. He did a fantastic job. I thought this season, um, both player developmentally and uh, just with the on on court stuff. Of course, there, there's there's a learning process there with uh, you know substitution patterns and in game stuff. But as a first year head coach and a very young one, frankly, um, there's a lot to like with Lloyd Pierce. So um, that's definitely this is sort of a definite uh, recognition of what he was able to do this year, as well as his relationship stuff. Um, and from the Hawks standpoint. Obviously, this takes away Pierce from his, um, I guess, his regular activities for a few months. But at the same time, um, I think this is nothing but upside for the Hawks. This uh, gives him an opportunity to sort of hobnob with the best players in the world. Also, you know, pick the brain, pick the, the brain of Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr. Um, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever for Lloyd Pierce. So, and given his relationship stuff, him having a good relationship with a lot of the best players in the world can only help the Hawks on the free agency standpoint. All that fun stuff. So. Pretty interesting stuff there from Lloyd Pierce, and I was a little bit surprised to see that, but once I, once I think about it, he's a pretty optimal choice given his player development background and his relationships with guys like LeBron James and um, that he's coached before in Cleveland, and he definitely has a quality relationship with basically everyone around the league. So shout out to Lloyd Pierce, and that was a pretty cool thing to see 
to start this week. Um, moving on from there to uh, the mailbag stuff that I wanted to hit on on this fine Wednesday. And uh, by the way, my apologies for the lack of audio quality. I think it's probably fine, but uh, not my normal setup here as I wanted to deliver the podcast a little bit earlier than I would have been able to had I been in my home studio. So with that said, um, first question that I wanted to get to comes from Peyton. And um, it is uh, the fact that I saw you tweeting about Dennis Schroeder and had to laugh as a Hawks fan. Looking back, how great was that trade for the Hawks? What would the Hawks have done if it wasn't available to them? Um, this is uh, sort of talking about the fact that I was uh, sort of poking some fun at the uh, at the deal. You know, if you're listening to this podcast a year ago or even, you know, repeatscripts.com or following me on Twitter or anything like that, you would know that I was a huge fan of the trade when it happened. I thought it was an absolute no-brainer for the Hawks. And uh, in retrospect, it definitely was exactly that in a lot of ways. Just as a refresher course, the Hawks traded Schroeder with three years remaining on his contract to Oklahoma City. Um, as you know, I guess it's sort of a part of a larger trade in some ways, but the, the crux of it was Schroeder for Carmelo Anthony, who was a huge expiring contract and a protected draft pick that could be a 2022 first rounder or a pair of second rounders later on. Um, just, you know, I love the deal at the time. So that said on the podcast, obviously there was a narrative out there that Schroeder would be better in Oklahoma city than he was in Atlanta, just because of the increased competition level and the fact that they're that they're uh, obviously looking to compete in the playoffs. By the time this is actually being recorded, Oklahoma City is already out of the playoffs now, but it's not really the fault of Schroeder. He wasn't like the reason they lost or anything like that. Still, um, the defensive uptick that people were forecasting didn't, didn't really come. I was really critical of Schroeder's defense last season and really the last two seasons that he was in Atlanta. Um, he was a little bit better, I think, if you want to be charitable this year in Oklahoma City in a smaller role offensively, allowing him to focus more defensively. But if you if you watch that playoff series against Portland, uh, he was routinely exposed defensively, and it's just not a strength of his. Again, I think he was a little bit better, but not something that you want to write home about defensively. And then as a fit in Oklahoma City, I just never loved that for them on their side. Of course, that doesn't really have anything to do with the Hawks, but didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And of course, on the Hawks side, they cleared the books for the future. They had to take some extra salary on in Anthony for one season, but obviously they just bought him out and uh, didn't really need to use that, use that space for much else. And uh, the big thing was getting Schroeder off the roster with Trey Young already on it. If you remember, Trey Young was, was drafted with Dennis still on the roster, and there was no way, at least in my mind, that that was going to be a long-term partnership between those two guys. So uh, no real pain, honestly, for Atlanta. And I would have done the, the trade without a draft pick, frankly. I said that at the time as well. But even just swapping Anthony's deal for Schroeder's deal was a was a positive, in my opinion, because Schroeder is negative value. He's owed two years and three and sorry $31 million the next two seasons combined. That's an overpay for Dennis Schroeder. I think he's a player that is a high-end backup, potentially low-end starter kind of player, but uh, he's overpaid at his number, especially when you, when you factor in his weaknesses. And uh, to this Hawks team, it was going to be a violent overpay with the way that Trey Young was uh, going to be coming in to run the show. So getting off that, obviously Melo was dead salary, but at the same time, it was one year dead salary versus three, and in the middle of a rebuild, that makes, that makes all the sense in the world for Atlanta, and it always did. Um, I still think, and I've heard this, is just sort of address the second part of the question, that the Hawks would have figured out a way to get Schroeder off the roster, and they had no plans, honestly, to enter, enter the season with, with Dennis on the roster. You know, at the time, Travis Schlenk, Lloyd Pierce were talking about the fact that the Hawks had, you know, ways to use those guys together, and that's what you have to say, but in my opinion, that was never really, never really going to be a temple situation. So I think moving forward, they were going to have to move on from him. They did better than I thought they were going to do, both at the time and in retrospect. You know, one year later, it looks even better because Schroeder didn't really improve the way that some people thought he might. And, of course, the Hawks were able to set the stage for the future with uh, by clearing their cap space. And now looking forward, they had cap space this year that they would not have really had had, had Schroeder been on the roster. So all that to say, 
Um, without full knowledge of other deals that are available, I think the ugliness of the two years and 31 million is kind of what you need to focus on there. And all signs, by the way, just are pointing to 2022 as potentially the double draft, which would be huge. Um, the, that, that pick is lottery protected. So the Thunder need to make the playoffs in 21 and 22, which is a long way away. I don't want to talk about that too much right now. But um, for that pick to convey, it'd be an awesome pick if it did convey for the Hawks, considering that's uh, potentially the draft that has high schoolers and college players in it. That'd be a huge boom for Atlanta if it was actually um, going to convey if, if it doesn't convey, it becomes two second-round picks in 24 and 25. That wouldn't be as good, obviously, as the first-round pick, but at the same time, the deal is still a home run, with or without the pick, and it just becomes more of like a grand slam if that actually ends up being a first-round pick in a double draft. So um, I guess in summary... It was an awesome trade when it happened. It's still an awesome trade, and some of the reaction to it was comical. I poked some fun at a, a very prominent national writer today on Twitter. People probably noticed that a little bit. Um, that was very critical of the deal from Atlanta standpoint. I never really understood that. Even if you didn't love um, the deal as much as I did and much as uh, some of my staff did over at PeacetreeHoops.com, at the very least, the theory of the deal made perfect sense for a team in a rebuilding mode. And, uh, you know, I think in, re in retrospect, again, it looks even better than it did a year ago. And that's kind of saying something. So um, quickly, before we get to the rest of the podcast, we want to take a moment to remind everyone to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or, or Himalaya, Stitcher. Spotify, Overcast, all those places that listen to podcasts. I really appreciate everybody that's already doing that, but go ahead and fire away on the subscribe button on your computers or tablets or phones and all the above. Tell your friends as well, family members, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll be back again in just a few seconds with more from the mailbag. All right, we're back. And the next question comes from Alan. And uh, he says, now that we know who's in the draft officially, at least for now, is the draft as weak as people were saying, or has it improved at all in your mind? Um, to that end, earlier this week, the um, the final early entry deadline passed, so there are 233 players that are underclassmen in the draft, in addition to even more um, guys who were seniors and exhausted their eligibility at the college level. It is worth noting and emphasizing that 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 a lot of these guys are going to, are going to go back to school. This is the declaration deadline; you can still pull out until late May, so it's going to be pared down a little bit between now and then. And let me quickly say that the takes out there about how there are only 60 draft slots at best and uh, there's so many players and what are, what are they all doing? That gets a little bit overplayed because a lot of these guys understand that A, they're just testing the waters to try to get more feedback or B, they're just kind of done with school. And, you know, sometimes people don't want to go to school anymore and they want to try to play professional basketball. If it's not going to be in the NBA, that's okay too. There are guys who want to play in the G League or go, go to Europe, etc. I wouldn't come down on them without some more information, just something to be said there at the top of this thing. But I do think that this is, remains a, a weak draft, in my opinion. It's not like an all-time weak draft. I think, you know, 2000's the famous one that was a disaster. There's been some, some bad ones. Obviously, the Anthony Bennett draft was not one that ended well. But, you know, Oladipo was in that draft. He was obviously a late bloomer in some ways, but he's a very, very good player, etc. And obviously, it helps to have Zion. I think Zion being in the draft helps the overall um, landscape a little bit because he is a fantastic prospect and a clear number one, in my opinion. So to have that guy at least takes away some of the pressure at the top. I still think that it's overall a, a weaker class, definitely than last year. Last year was a very good class, so was the year before. So we're coming off two, I think, pretty strong classes that were kind of known to be strong classes, even coming into the draft, and it looked, looked to be pretty good right now in 2017 and 2018. Looking ahead, 2019 and 20 were supposed to be pretty ugly both on, on both counts. This year, um, it's just kind of flat. You know, It's not a situation where there isn't any talent. There's still talent in the draft, but there's a clear number one, and for me, a pretty clear number two with John Morant. Um, after that, I've, I'm not really someone who lumps RJ Barrett into his own tier. I think, you know, from three to, you know, 11 or 12, the gap is not that big, frankly. And I think um, you can see a situation this season where 
you know, there are guys who are dra- who will be drafted at four, five, six that probably would be late lottery picks in some drafts. It's just one of those things. Like there is some talent, and uh, as always, the cream will rise to the top. At some point, you're going to get some uh, some bargains in the 20s and 30s and 40s even that are going to pop, and it won't be a disaster of a draft. You know, from top to bottom. I do think though the overall talent level is a little bit lower than you would like to if you were a Hawks fan with two lottery picks projected at this point in time and also three picks in the top 45 in the second round. You know, last year's draft was deeper, to be sure. I think you certainly would have would have, would have rather had these uh, these five picks in last year's draft than this year's draft, but it's not always apples to apples. And I think, you know, it is a negative draft in terms of just versus the baseline that's an overall standpoint, but there's still some some talent available. And uh, me saying that it's a weak draft does not mean that there aren't any, any talented quality players available because there are for the Hawks to choose from. So uh, one example before I move on to the next question is that, you know, the Dallas pick individually, that that pick in the 9 to 13 range, I think last year you would have gotten a better player. You know, like whether it be Miles Bridges or, you know, Mikhail Bridges, you know, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, those, those guys all went in that in that range. And those guys, uh, those same prospects a year ago were in this draft, they'd probably be, be consensus top seven guys. So it's not a huge, you know, shift there. Those guys were more in the 8 to 12 range projected, and then they went in the 8 to 12 range last year. This year, those guys would almost certainly be, you know, top seven, top eight picks. So it's just like kind of a slide from, you know, three, four, five spots down. And that's not a huge thing, but if you're picking in the 9 to 11 range, um, it, isn't, it, it isn't the greatest thing in the world, because I think if you were just, for instance, you know, Miles Bridges went like 13 or 14 last year. If you got him at 8 or 9 this draft, you'd be overjoyed. So just compare those two things. It's kind of a pretty good baseline to tell you what the the consensus is for this year's draft. Uh, Last thing on the agenda, again, we're probably going to be a shorter podcast today than normal, but it's just one of those things I'm back to individual. And uh, for the most part, I'm going to have guests on for the uh, between now and the draft uh, more often than not. So you'll get just me on today's podcast. But the last one is a non-Hawks question in some ways. It comes from uh, Donald. I don't think you've given enough uh, sorry, I don't think you've given any playoff predictions on the podcast. So, um, who you got? Um, you know, it's obviously a little bit later now. It's not a before the, before the playoffs started, but I think you know, at this moment, it's Wednesday afternoon. We pretty much know who's going to win uh, seven of the eight series. Uh, Denver and San Antonio is somewhat in doubt. Denver does have control of that series, though, with a 3-2 lead heading back to San Antonio for game six. But... Um, so looking ahead, I think I'm going to take the Bucks over the Celtics in round two. I'm going to take the Raptors over the Sixers pretty pretty safely on those two. It wouldn't stun me if either one of those lost because, you know, Boston does have real upside when they click together. But I think Milwaukee's been the best team in the East for the duration, and I'm going to pick them over Toronto in the Eastern Conference Finals. Toronto, I do think, can beat Milwaukee. I think Boston probably could too, but I think Toronto is clearly the second best team in my opinion, and their defensive upside's pretty much off the chart. So if you get some weirdness with Milwaukee and, uh, you know, Budenholzer wasn't always my favorite playoff coach in the world, I think Giannis has the best is the best player on the board in the East for sure. But uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll say Milwaukee over Toronto in seven in the Eastern Conference Finals, and uh, in the West. It's uh, pretty clearly whoever wins the Warriors Rocket Series for me is going to win. I'll take the Warriors until further notice. I just can't pick against them. I do think Houston is a very, very clear number two in the Eastern in the Western Conference. And then uh, it's kind of unfortunate that they're going to be playing in round two because I wish they were playing the Western Conference Finals. But that kind of is a de facto Western Conference Finals. You know, all respect to to Portland, who has been awesome. Damon, Damon Lillard's been out of his mind, including last night when he had 50 and a 37 foot game winner, a series winner actually. He was he's been out of his mind. But I think with Portland. And uh, I guess the winner of Denver, San Antonio. I just, I'm not sure any of those teams can guard Houston or Golden State. Um, Portland would be more dangerous if they had Houston Nurkic, but with their current big man crop, you know Zach Collins, 
Enos Cantor, um, small ball lineups. They just cannot guard, I don't think, Houston or Golden State. So I will take Golden State um, over Milwaukee in the finals. There's nothing really bold about that. A couple of number one seeds there and uh, no uh, no uh, craziness for me. But I think that's pretty safely the choice. Uh, I think if there is an upset to be had, it's more likely to come in the East. I still think the most prohibitive and safest bet in the world right now, um, in the NBA world, I should say, is Golden State to make the finals and to win the finals. I, I think if I had to pick one upset, I would probably pick Toronto over Milwaukee. Um, but even then, that would be kind of a modest upset considering how good Toronto has been this year. So nothing sexy there, but I wanted to at least offer my thoughts up. I do cover the league uh, on a big picture scale, non-Hawks division um, over at Dime Mag. So if you want to listen to, I guess, read my thoughts over there for the most part, I'm on three nights a week and some mock draft stuff and et cetera, et cetera. I'm big picture takes. So uh, check that stuff out as well. Um, thanks for listening. As always, everybody, we will be back again later on this week with a scheduled interview that I have. It'll be a lot of fun. And then we'll dig into the draft full steam ahead. Our player previews are going to be starting. Uh, sorry, our, our our prospect previews are going to be starting on PeachtreeHoops.com over the weekend. We're just wrapping up our player review series. I wrote about John Collins earlier today. If you want to, if you want to read that, um, please go ahead and check that out. As well as a uh, Trey Young coming tomorrow from Graham Chapel. Um, Lots of stuff from Jeff Siegel and Glenn Willis and Greg Willis and Zach Hood and all kinds of people. Sam Meredith. Everybody's everybody's been digging in, and there's lots of quality content on the written side. So please subscribe to this podcast. Check out PeachTreeHoops.com, and we'll see everybody in a couple of days.